100,000 miles. Wow. There you go. I love it. How many of you feel like your, uh, your life is that song like on the road again and not necessarily with a smile on your face? How many of you feel like there's this constant movement going on and you're just trying to discern which way is up? Uh, even though it's a, it's a positive song as far as the key, it's actually a song that he says, there's something lonely and, and I'm hungry for something more, you know, than, than being on the road again. I think about uh, being on the road again when it comes to moving, high stress moments in our lives. Anyone move in the past six months? Anyone move? High stress? A lot of anxiety, you know? Um, I, I had never thought about this before, but I thought about how many times my family moved before I was 18 years old. Ten times my family moved before I was 18 years old. And I don't, maybe that explains something with my personality. Maybe that explains something about my temperament. I don't know. But I think my mom was always an unsettled person. And we moved, and I'm, I'm thinking about it. We lived in Saratoga, California, Los Gatos, California, East San Jose, California, Dallas, Texas, Tucson. That was a really horrible time, but Tucson, Arizona, East Mesa, Central Mesa, North Scottsdale, Parrot. And I'm thinking to myself, man, some people gravitate to that kind of life where there's constant movement, and who knows what they're trying to cover up with all the moving. Some people don't move at all. Do you know some people that have never moved at all? Do your parents, like, live in the same house? That they, I mean, there's people that don't move. Now, here's the thing I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw at you this morning when it comes to our, our messages. We need to talk about a kind of moving that is stressful, right? Because moving is one of those high-stress things. Changing a job, getting married, moving, those are, like, high-stress things. But there's a moving that happens spiritually that shouldn't be stressful, there's a moving of God that he says it is time to get on the road again, thank you, Willie, that ought to bring a sense of peace. And, and yet the moving of God in our lives is, is, is a mysterious thing as well. And I think the big million-dollar question is this, how does God move? How do we recognize God's voice in saying, hey, it is time to get on the road again. It's time to start making some moves, doing things. Because here's what I do know. Too much movement can be unhealthy, but no movement can be equally as unhealthy. And we come to a place in Acts 13 where the church is on the move. The church is getting ready to do some fantastic things and perhaps more than ever, the church needed to understand the Spirit's guidance more than ever. Here's the good news. As believers in Christ, you have been given God's spiritual GPS system called the Holy Spirit. Write that down, GPS. He always knows where you're at, but he always is going to direct you where you need to go. Here's what I know is true of all of us in this room. Some of you, there's too much working in your life for God and not enough listening. You're always moving, but you're maybe not grounded and you need to be more grounded. But I'm going to say probably the majority of you have been too grounded and you need to start moving. And I think Acts 13 gives us some incredible insight into our lives in answering these specific questions. How do we recognize the guidance of God? How do we know the direction that God wants us to go in life? How do we find the will of the Holy Spirit when it comes to the different things and different people we meet day in and day out, week in and week out? So if you remember that chapter 13 is a, is a, is a beginning of a, we'll call it the third stage of God's redemptive plan. 
chapters 1 through 7 of Acts, have been the gospel in Jerusalem. Acts 8 through 12 have been the gospel going to Judea and Samaria. Acts 13 and on now is the gospel going to the uttermost parts of the world. Matter of fact, we've been given that outline by Dr. Luke in chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, you're going to be my witnesses, and there's a key part. So many times we forget about the, the witness part, the part that involves you and I, the part that involves you and I moving for God, and we, we, we celebrate the gospel going to the uttermost parts of the world, right? We celebrate the gospel being in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, but we forget about how the gospel gets there. The gospel gets to where it needs to go by God moving his witnesses, you and me, to do that work and taking the good news to the uttermost parts of the world. So really, my pastoral question to you is, how is God moving you to get that gospel to all people in all places? Because you've heard me preach this before. None of us are immune. You don't get a hall pass when it comes to your missional presence in this world. I may get paid to be the pastor. That doesn't mean those who are not paid don't do the work of ministry. You have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. And perhaps it's the biggest and greatest responsibility that God has given to us is that you have been saved to share that message with others. And maybe the lack of fulfillment we've experienced in life is because we don't understand the spiritual calling God has on our lives. I'm, I'm celebrating your jobs, your careers, your, your, your new houses, your old houses, uh, your achievements, all the hobbies, all the sports, your kids, whatever, right? I can celebrate all those things with you. But at what cost are we involved in so many of these things that don't matter in time or eternity? I, I'm happy your kids do well in soccer. I'm happy you got that promotion at work. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I am going to continue to encourage us all in is what are we doing for the gospel of God in the souls of men and women? Because that's ultimately what matters in the end. Acts 13, turn there. We have four verses we're going to cover this morning. I know, that's a big chunk for some of you. So four verses Let's read them in their entirety, and let's talk about the fact that the early church needed the Spirit's guidance. Because God is about ready to change the world forever. We don't understand the power of Acts 13, I think. How God, we are here today because of what God did in Acts 13. God mobilizing this unique group of believers to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. You and I are the recipients of their faithful, spirit-guided work. And so this is important. What happened 2,000 years ago is as relevant today as it was when the gospel went forward to the uttermost parts of the world. It, in, it invaded the Roman Empire and beyond. Look at Acts 13, starting in verse 1. Now there was in Antioch... In the church, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me 
Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. May God write his eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. Three things I want us to to look at and consider here as we think about the Spirit's guidance. As we think about doing not just the work of God, but understanding the will of God. Each one of us has an important part to play in this great work of redemption. There are no sideline players when it comes to God's work. God wants to use all of us, and I think that's why probably this first point is so important. The Spirit's guidance in sacred assembly. Meaning, look at verse 1. Now, there was at Antioch, if you remember Antioch, it is one of the largest cities in the world at this time. Third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a metropolis. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was made up of so many different types of people from so many different places in the world, all sorts of faith backgrounds. There were monuments and statues and temples erected to so many different gods. There were people that had applied their lives to so many different trades. It was truly a megapolis. And here... This whole event of God taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world started in Antioch. And we can understand why, because here was a group of Christians in this very large city that really consisted in this beautiful multiplicity, this variety of believers that we have to stop and we have to celebrate. Two things I want to acknowledge when it comes to this sacred assembly. Number one, the plurality of the church or plurality in the church. There are so many different types of people with different types of gifts in the local church. We've got, specifically mentioned here, prophets and teachers. Can I just tell you the simplest way to summarize a prophet and a teacher? A prophet is one who brings application of God's truth to our lives. The teacher is the one who instructs us in God's truth. They work in tandem with each other because the teacher has to instruct the church, whereas the prophet comes in and says, here's how that truth is applied. So these two gifts work really well hand in hand, but those aren't the only gifts in the church. This early church had, had people who loved hospitality. This early church had people who had the gift of baristering. You guys didn't know baristas are spiritual gifts from God. Give it up for our baristas. Yeah! You didn't know running slides and running sound and teaching kids and and signing people up for women's events. Those are all spiritual gifts. A gift is really a talent that can be used for the glory of God. And so with that said, we could do anything for God's glory, and it's a gift. I celebrate the fact that not all people are teachers. I celebrate the fact that not all people are prophets. I celebrate the fact that there are people who have high desire to be used when it comes to mercy ministries. Caring for those who are, ha, are struggling with addiction or, 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 or counseling when it comes to helping couples reconcile with one another. 
and we celebrate that no one gift is more important than the other. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, 14 sometime. How dare we put an emphasis on one gift and ignore the other gifts? We are the body of Christ. Not everyone is the entire body. Dave Lavolsi is the big toe. David Kosan's the big ear. Thomas Fraro is the pinky. Lori is the right nostril. Tina's the left nostril. We all make up the body of Christ. But not one part of the body is more important than the other. We function well together. This is why we celebrate the plurality in the church. And we see this here. We see this here that it does not depend on one person, but it revol- involves the, 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 the many who are gifted by God so that they bring their gift to the table. But the second thing we look at is not just the plurality in the church. We talk about the diversity in the church. This was no accidental conglomerate of people of different races and cultures and and backgrounds. This is an intentional sign by God to say the gospel's for everybody. Amen? Black, white, employed, unemployed, male, female, AFL, NFL, CFL. I don't know what those things mean, but it's for everybody. And we have to consider the fact that God loves the fact that the first believers were called Christians at Antioch. Why? Because it shows the manifold beauty of God in saving all different types of people from all different types of places with all different types of background, solely centered on the love and gospel of Jesus Christ. That's awesome. The fact that Revelation chapter 7, if you really want to know the end of the story, You read Revelation. It's not a scary book. It's an exciting book. It's a book about worship. And you have in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, the fact that there are people from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, worshiping in unity the name, the beauty, the majesty of Jesus Christ. That's what matters. And I'm going to tell you right now that we as a church have to, we have a long way to go in in fighting certain prejudices and fighting racism You know the places where God's spirit doesn't work and doesn't guide is when you close your mind off to someone being the recipient of God's love because they don't vote like you. The spirit will not work in the heart that says the gospel's not for that person. You think you're going to hear the voice of God? When you have within your heart this indifference, this apathy, this prejudice, this racism, we got to get over that, you guys. We got to get over that. We got to work on that. We need to let every single person know that there's a God who loves them. Amen? I mean, if you don't believe that, I might, let's just close up and go home and watch football. Cowboys are on at 10. I got better things to do. No, I don't. No, I don't. Because I've devoted my life to this, and I want you to see the heart of God in this. There are five guys mentioned here. We're going to call them the Antioch Five. You like that? Here it is, the Antioch Antioch Five. Why does Luke give us the Antioch Five? Because he wants you to see the diversity. There's Barnabas. Barnabas, this guy, oh my goodness, he was a Jewish priest from Cyprus. He was a Levite. We got Simeon. He was a black African Jew, sub-Saharan African. We got Lucius. He was a brown African Gentile. He was from Libya. We got Menaean. Notice Menaean. He was a 
bestie with Herod Antipas. This is the guy who stood at the trials of Christ and made sure Christ was crucified along with Pontius Pilate. This was BFFs with Herod, and he makes it into the church? So we've got a privileged aristocrat who grew up around wealth and power. He made it in. And then we got Saul, who was a rabbi who trained at the feet of the wisest man in the known world named Gamaliel. Think about this list, the Antioch Five. The common thread among them was their deep faith in Christ. Can I I just write down the name of Jesus? Because at the end of the day, that's what matters more than anything. That if there is a fellow believer that worships Jesus, you can have fellowship with that person no matter what their voting record is like, no matter what kind of car they drive, no matter what kind of cologne they wear, or if they wear cologne at all, whether they shower or don't, it doesn't matter. Unity is harmony compiled with diversity. And this is what makes the body of Christ beautiful. It would be boring if everyone looked like Gunther. He'd be so tall. This is why the concept of worldwide missions is born from this chapter. The reason we take the gospel to all peoples, tribes, nations, and languages is born from this chapter. Because we see the diversity among this group. Three things that made this group group diverse. Here they are. Number one, there's gifting diversity. Gifting diversity, is that up there? Okay, it's all right. Gifting diversity, first blank. Gifting, we celebrate all gifts. We've already touched upon this. There are prophets, there's teachers, Uh, The Bible lists in Romans 12, Philippians, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, probably 15, 20 different gifts in the body. We celebrate everyone's different gift, and we make sure that not one is celebrated more than another. So there's gifting diversity here. There's ethnic diversity, point number two. They were from different regions in the world. They were, they were different in appearance. It's okay if not everyone looks like you. For some of us, that's a good thing, right? Think about the ethnic diversity of the five leaders mentioned. One of them's from the Middle East. One of them's from Asia. One of them's from the Mediterranean, and two of them are from Africa, and they're doing ministry in predominantly a Jewish context. Hello. Pretty awesome. So there's ethnic diversity, and then the third one is that there is cultural diversity, You've got those that are educated. You've got those who are uneducated. You've got those who uh, grew up around wealth and p- power. You've got those who were trained specifically under wise teachers. You've got a whole different panoply of people with different cultural backgrounds. And that's celebrated. Boy, we would do well to understand one another's differences. Where we're from, how we're raised, what we've been involved in. And instead of judging one another negatively, we celebrate how does God want to use those things positively for the gospel? How are you going to be a real estate agent for the glory of God? Let's celebrate that. How are you going to work some sort of political campaign for the glory of God? Let's celebrate that. How many of you are going to be a baker, a chef for the glory of God? Let's celebrate that. Because it would be boring if everyone did the job of Pastor Scott and just teaching. Because that's all I do. 
You guys realize that. That's all I do. I just prepare a message for Sunday, and that's my pastoral duties. No, I'm just kidding. How does God want to use you, your gifts, your skills, your abilities, your talents for the glory of God? Use your cultural upbringing. Use your ethnic diversity for the glory. And how are we as a church going to wrap our arms around that and celebrate it? I love the fact that we have a leadership team here at Missio Day that is comprised of men, women, people who have been divorced, people who have been, been remarried, people who have, you know, have never been married before, people who have had 20 jobs, people who have moved 50 times, people who have moved one time, people who have had one job, right? It doesn't matter. What matters is that in Christ we have been brought together. And we're going to go ahead and storm hell with a squirt gun, proclaim Jesus everywhere we go, and encourage the church to do the same. This is a sacred assembly. There is no spect- Christianity is not a spectator sport. God wants to use you. Connect with that missional mentality. And remind you that you are part of this sacred assembly and that you are a priest in the household of God. There's been too much of the professionalization of ministry that I think has hindered and hampered the church to do what the church needs to do. The church is not me preaching. The church is all of us living with Jesus as our commander-in-chief and Jesus being the greatest topic we can talk about. Amen? Point two. The Spirit's guidance in setting apart. Look at verse two. So (laughs) verse one gives us this picture of plurality and diversity. Verse two, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, now my question to you is, How does the Holy Spirit say? Like you read that and go, how does this happen? Well, I'm going to tell you, it probably connects with verse 1 because there are prophets and teachers. The Holy Spirit speaks in concert with the Word of God. You cannot come to me and tell me something about what the Spirit has said when it doesn't connect with God's Word. The Spirit brings to remembrance the things that Jesus has said. The Spirit works in using the Word of God as as fuel and food for the ways He talks to us. The Holy Spirit will never speak to you in ways that are contradictory to God's truth. We need to be clear on that. But it is men and women in the church that help with understanding God's Word and applying it. And there's the the prophet that says, Here's God's word. Here's your situation. Here's how the two go together. So the Holy Spirit says, set apart. Circle that phrase in your Bible or underline it or highlight it or set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Now, I love the fact that God interrupts this thriving church with a sudden command. This church is is busy doing God's work, and all of a sudden they're interrupted by the Spirit who says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul because I've got some work for them to do. Now this verse is ripe 
with some incredible content that you and I need to navigate together. The first being this, generally, that I want to I bring, the idea of being set apart, that's the, that's the point, right? The Spirit's guidance in being set apart. That word set apart is something that has happened to all of us as believers in Jesus Christ. This is, this is the word sanctified. You have been saved to be different. So the first point in your notes is a set apart in position. Once you are in Christ, there's nothing that can take you out of Christ. You are saved forever. Woohoo! Hallelujah. Amen. Got nothing to worry about. God's got you. John 10. Romans 8. Write those down. That's just encouragement for your soul. You are set apart in position. God has chosen you. He has set his affections upon you. He has made you holy positionally because Christ is holy. He has wrapped you with his robe of righteousness, and you've got nothing to fear. Your position is unalterable. You're forever his. Now, granted, there are times you don't feel holy. Can I get an amen? You don't feel like, man, I'm t- your position will never change. You're, you're saved in Christ forever. Oh, boy, that's so good. We need to be reminded of that. But your position will come clear in your practice. Your beliefs will impact your behavior. Which brings us to point two, set apart in practice, which is obedience. How do I know that I am saved in Christ? Because you desire the things God desires for you. You desire holiness. You crave purity. You want the truth. You are no longer wanting to be the king or queen over your own life. You now invite the Lord in because Christ's lordship says, I take over. I don't co-reign. I knock you off the seat so that I can clearly show you and tell you how to live because his ways are far superior than my ways. So you have been set apart for holiness. And when God sees you now, he sees you as holy because the perfect substitutionary love of the Lamb has been given to you on your account and covered your sin, and you are now declared righteous when you didn't deserve any of that, and now you are righteous in position forever because of Christ's faithful work on the cross. And now, because of what he has done, what he has gifted, he now enables me to want something more than I want for myself. And that's walking in holiness. And the greatest way you can walk in holiness is being obedient to the things of God. This is the practice part. It is difficult to walk with God it is difficult to obey the Lord. I'm not at all saying these things are easy. Let me give you two things found in this text that are going to help us in practice in being obedient to the Lord. Two things. Here we go. Ready? And if, you, if, you, if I haven't been preaching to this point, it's going to shift into preaching now. All, the difference between preaching and teaching is this. Teaching... Is, it's, it's cool, right? Like, it's informative. Preaching, there's emotions involved. As if I haven't given you enough emotions already. I'm going to bleed emotions here for the next 10 minutes for you, all right? 
two things you need to acknowledge. Number one, the Spirit spoke to the, not, not this yet. Let's, yeah, I don't want to, no, that's, that's too good. We, they're not ready for this yet. All right, so <laughs> notice two things in verse two. While they were ministering to the Lord, God will speak to you while you are busy doing his work. And to think that God will speak to you when you're not doing what God wants you to do is a misnomer. And I want to be very clear on this. We want God to speak to us, but you haven't even jumped into what God wants you to do for him. Let me, I'm going to, this is so, this is, this is probably the, the secret sauce of the message. Right here. Notice the Spirit speaks to these people while they're working and sharing and doing the gospel work. Too many Christians want God to speak to them, and they haven't even broken a sweat for the gospel. Now, we don't know why this church at this moment is worshiping and praying and fasting, which we'll talk about here just in a moment, but they're seeking God for something. And I think the Spirit is stirring something in them. I'm going to call it a, a holy discontent where they realize that the Antioch 5 and what God is doing in Antioch in general needs to go further. And so they stop and they do three things. They worship, they pray, they fast. Now, I think some of us generally would say, I kind of understand worship. I kind of understand praying, but the whole fasting thing is a mystery. I could probably do a whole different message on praying and fasting, which, who knows, maybe I'll do. Maybe the Spirit will disrupt me this week and say, you need to do a message on this. But just real quick, why is this important? Why does verse 2 say that they're ministering, but they're also worshiping and fasting together? Why is fasting important? Let me just take a minute and talk about this. What is fasting? Fasting is a willingness to set aside the normal demands of life in order to concentrate for a time on what God wants. Let me rephrase it another way. There comes a point where you are hungering and thirsting for God that you are going to now really intensify seeking his face, seeking his guidance, Seeking his direction because you know something needs to happen rather than the status quo at the moment. And they're going, we need to fast. I don't know what God's stirring in us, but we need to fast. It is setting aside something that you deem as important, something that may preoccupy a lot of your time. It doesn't always have to do with food. It can do with anything that could be a potential distraction. I'm not saying it's evil or sinful, but it's something that you're saying, boy, you know what? I watched two hours of TV. I'm going to fast from that for 24 hours. I'm going to take that two hours. I would watch that show, and I'm going to devote it to praying and reading the word and fasting because I really want to seek the face of God right now. And I, and I love the hunger and the eagerness and the intensity of this. And I wonder, and I'm thinking, preparing this message, going, Lord, are there times you probably want us as a church to fast? Maybe it's for a member in the body 
who's going through something. Maybe we say, you know what, we're going to take 24 hours of church and we're going to have a set time during the week where we're going to fast. That could happen. I'm praying for that to happen. Maybe it's a movement. Maybe God wants us to do something as a, as a ministry that maybe we've never considered before and we're going to go before the Lord and go, Lord, we want your will to be done. We don't want this to be of us. I don't know what this looks like. But all I know is this. These are people already doing the work of ministry. I don't want you to think that fast is like the golden ticket. Like, well, you know, Pastor Scott said, if I just fast, I'll get the answers for my life. And what? No, I'm not. you should already be doing the work of God. And then you add fasting and praying to it, your spiritual antenna will be more sensitive than you've ever experienced in your life. Here's what God doesn't do. God does not dust off people who haven't been doing anything he uses the ones that are in the middle, middle of it, and those are the ones he takes and uses for his work. Let me rephrase it another way. They're, these guys are not the ones watching television. They're not the ones studying the stock market. They're not the ones sleeping in. They are focusing together on Jesus as the leadership of the church, and they have great intensity and seriousness, and they're not treating their spiritual lives as casual. We're not treating it as if it's one day of the week. These men and women are intentionally seeking God's guidance. And the best time to hear God's voice is when you're busy doing what God wants you to do. And what does that look like? It means you're reaching out to others in love and showing grace. It means you're encouraging someone in the faith. It means you're sharing the gospel. Some of you want to hear the voice of God, but you haven't even been busy doing the work of God. Get in the game, and you'll start to hear his voice. Too many sideline believers are out there, and their lives are miserable because there's no spiritual sensitivity. Why is it that when we're doing the work of ministry, we're more spiritually sensitive is because you're doing what God wants you to do. And he goes, you are a good recipient of hearing my voice. Have you not heard the voice of God in a while? Has the Holy Spirit not spoken to you in a while? How are you serving the king? How are you making his kingdom first in your life? Because I'll tell you what, if God is just kind of a addendum, if he's just kind of an appendix, if he's kind of like an <gasps> afterthought, here's why I'll guarantee you, you will not hear his voice. Don't we want the gift, but are so quick to just get rid of the giver? God doesn't exist to give you what you want. He exists to show you who he is. He's going to speak to you this way. But lest you hear what I'm not saying, work and worship must work hand in hand. Why? Because work without worship will lead to selfish legalism. Too many Christians are working, but they're not worshiping. Meaning, 
they have embraced a form of legalistic, self-centered service that has no devotion on Christ. But you can also worship without work, which will ultimately lead to shallow godliness. There are a lot of people who sit in churches Sunday after Sunday, Saturday after Saturday, whenever you go and worship, but they're not in the game. And I'm going to tell you right now, worship without work leads to a form of godliness, but it lacks the power thereof. You do not sit on the sidelines of life and wait for God to tell you what to do. You get moving. You get busy. And, and striking that balance between working and waiting and, and working and listening, that's, that's something that the Spirit has to, to orchestrate. But here's what I do know. The only safe rule at the end of the day is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And guess what? He's going to give you all other stuff. Matthew six thirty three. What are you doing? What are you doing that's going to help you Listen. Because God will not speak to you if you are inactive in doing what he wants you to do. The second part, remember there was a first part 30 minutes ago? Yeah, here's the second part. And it's this. He speaks to him generally. Look what happens. So the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. As much as I want the Antioch 5, I'm going to take the Antioch 2. And notice how the Spirit selects, is specific, and it doesn't even tell us what work they have been called to do. And can I just tell you right now, God sometimes operates in the realm of generalities. He is a God who is not probably going to reveal the whole plan to you right at the beginning. He's only going to reveal enough information to you to take the first step. And then once you do that, which is obedience, then he goes, now I can reveal to you the second step. He operates on a need-to-know basis. Right? This is the kind of God who says, I could give you the whole picture, but I'm not going to because faith wouldn't be involved on your part. Obedience is necessary. Our obedience that the next step will open the door to further guidance, God will provide, but it's the obedience he's looking for. So I remember 20 plus years ago, you know, my wife and I were doing college ministry, had an awesome time with this college group, 150 college students, dirty couches, day-old bagels, loud guitars, fog machines. It was awesome. Kids coming to know Jesus. We had... We had divers who were colored-sponsored swimmers. We had goths. We had stoners. We had Republicans. We had Democrats. I mean, we had all sorts of mischief and mayhem happening, right? But God had not called me to be a college pastor. He had called me to, to be a lead pastor, a senior pastor. I got that call in my life when I was 18 years old. But I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know what the next step was. All I knew is that I'm in ministry. I'm doing what God wants me to do at the moment, but I don't know what the next step is. So a pastor approaches me, 
Lynn Winters, I don't know if you guys know Lynn, he's at Cornerstone. He was, my, he was my wife's youth pastor back in the day. We've known Lynn and Lisa for years. Lynn came up to me and said, hey, I want you to pray about planting a church. I, I had no clue. Like, what does this mean? What does this entail? My wife and I, no kids at the time, been married eight years. He said, just go to an assessment center. Have these people look at every area of your life for like four days. They're interviewing about your mess marriage. They're talking to you about your mom's death. They're, they're going deep when it comes to, you know, who you are. And then they're talking about ministry. Preach a sermon, you know, share the gospel. Every area of our lives were unturned for four days. And at the end of this assessment center, they come to you with a grade. Right? So, so some, some of you who are results-oriented would probably have, like, trauma and stress from this. Like, oh, oh am I going to pass? Am I going to fail? Am I going to be used of God? And there are people that go through this, and it is a highly intense, stressful time. And they basically came and they said, we feel you and Lori would do phenomenal. We give you the heartiest of recommendations. Go plant a church. Well, it's easy for them to say that. It's a whole lot different to be like, what does that mean? Do I have to leave college ministry? Do I have to raise support? Do I, where, where do I even go? I mean, is Tuba City viable? Is you, do, do they need Jesus in Ajo? I don't know. So my wife and I, in this moment of our lives, were open to it. We weren't sold on it, but we were open to it. And it was February 1999 that we said we're going to commit the whole month to praying, fasting, seeking God's next step. And I'm going to tell you right now that February of 1999, God showed up. And spoke, not in a whisper, it felt like a megaphone. We would, I would, so advice, whenever God is perhaps trying to direct you to that next step and you're not sure what that next step is, surround yourself with godly counsel and advisors. So I made appointments with pastors, seminary professors, just godly men that I had just been blessed by. And said, would you just meet? I just, I want to just throw some things at you. And before I would even have a chance to broach the topic, they would come at me and say, hey, have you ever thought about church planting? And they brought it up. And it happened once. And it happened twice. And it happened three times, a lady. It happened a third time. And all of a sudden now the topic, which was so like, foreign to us was being talked about everywhere we went and the, the the cherry on top of this whole season of seeking God's guidance we're at a party where we don't know anybody because we try to find parties that we can just crash and get free drink and food right no we don't do that maybe we do I don't know that's for you to determine I don't know we're at a party and a random person comes up to us and starts talking about church planting. And I'm going, at the end of February 1999, we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, the voice of God had been speaking. But it was only because we had taken a month 
Granted, it was the shortest month of the year, so it's going to be easy. And we just said, God, we want to know. You know we want to serve you. You know we want to honor you. We just need to know, is this the time to pivot to do this thing that we've never done before? Jump into the unknown. Go into this adventure. And God made it so clear. Not only in my conversations, but in my wife's conversations. And that was when we planted our first church in year 2000. And it has been an adventure every, ever since. With great moments and with some sorrowful moments. But that's life, isn't it? That's ministry. Here, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. By, by, by me telling you this, as God leads us generally, God wants more than anything to tell you what the next step is, step is especially when it comes to you in his service. But don't think it's not going to come about without some work on your part. You need to set aside time. You need to pray. You need to fast. You need to seek godly counsel. And you need to seek him with intensity like you've never sought him out before. Almost do like a Gideon's fleece kind of thing. Right? Where you just sit there and go, God, if you do this, this, and this, Right, And you're not doing it selfishly, and you're not doing it as if you know, you're trying to strong-arm him or, or manipulate him. But there's some clear things you have in mind that you would love for him to, to speak to or, or speak at. Boy, he has an amazing way of getting your attention. So I don't know what it is. I do know, and let me just close with this before I land this plane, because we are landing. Being guided by the Spirit is an adventure. And, and there's no one size covers all in how God works and speaks in our lives. I do know that it is for the glory of Jesus. It is through the word and will of God. It is the Spirit that prompts and directs and guides, right? But what he's saying to you and me, it, it could look different. could feel different. But here's the one thing I think most of us are concerned with how scary the next step could be. And let me give you a promise. And the promise comes from the lips of Jesus himself because those are the best promises. As scary as it may be, as adventurous as it may seem, as dark as the unknown may appear, here's what I want you to, to be encouraged by. God doesn't, in, doesn't tell you it's going to be safe. If you're looking for safe, you don't understand the work of God. Okay? So here's what I'm going to say. The Lord does not promise to keep us from suffering. But what the Lord does promise is to sustain us through suffering. Because what, what we're going to see next week is that Barnabas and Saul are set apart to enter some really intense seasons of suffering. Somehow we think God's work is like immune from, from suffering. It's not. If you think like the next step has got to be easy, comfortable, safe, secure, God's got, God's got a ride for you to go on. 
and it is going to involve, and I will, I will just say this as a guarantee, it's going to involve some suffering. Because Jesus never promised us to be safe from suffering. He has promised to be sustained. He will sustain us through it. And I can tell you right now, that's a whole different message that I can preach on. Last point, and we'll close with this. The Spirit's guidance in sending away. The Spirit sends Barnabas and Saul away. And I love how the church has been been involved in this, sending away. And how tough it must have been for the Antioch church to get rid of their two best guys. Let's just be honest. Like, this is a church that has, is young, but has grown up within its ranks, people to help carry on the ministry, and they're not afraid to lose two of their best. And I love the fact that Barnabas and Saul display for all believers for all time what it means to be in Christ. What it means to be in Christ is to be on mission. Can you write those two phrases down? In Christ equals on mission. That's what Barnabas and and Saul are going to tell us for the remainder of Acts. Is if you are in Christ, you are on mission. You're to be his witnesses. Wherever God's going to take you. Because in a few minutes, you're going to be sent away. You can't stay here. As much as I love you, you got to go. But as I send you away, more importantly, the Spirit sends you away. Notice verse 3. Look what it says. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, basically giving them their, their, their approval and their affirmation, right? They sent them away, verse 3, and then verse 4 says, so being sent out by the Spirit... So who does the sending? Is it us or is it the Spirit? Yes. Both and. But with that said, let me, two points. We have to avoid two extremes when it comes to the the sending away of God's people. You have to avoid the extreme of individualism, and you have to avoid the extreme of institutionalism. And what do I mean by that? And, And how important is this? We live in a culture that has lost this sense of dependency on the church. Right? We have lost this sense of making big decisions, seeking the will of God for our lives, and we think we can do it individually and we don't need one another. That's a mistake. Individualism is killing the church. It is dangerous to be a believer who claims direct personal guidance by the Spirit without any connection to the local church. We need each other. So we're believing God's working in you as an individual, but don't do it divorced from the collective body we call the church. But the second point is the extreme of institutionalism that says, you know, we have this equation. We can fit in your situation. Do, 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 do. Here's the outcome. Good luck. Godspeed. God bless. This church prayed, fasted, cried, laughed. They did not do anything apart from what the Spirit wanted them to do. See, institutionalism operates as the ministry without any sort of dependency on the Spirit. That is a dangerous place to be. We do not want to be a decision-making body without any reference or sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Amen?
because his gifting and calling in your life is going to be unique to you, but it's going to be in concert with the overall work of the gospel. And so we need to pray. We need to fast. We need to be directed by the Spirit. Isn't it cool? You guys, the Spirit saves, and the Spirit sets us apart, and the Spirit sends us out. And now you get to go be the church in the world. You get to be Jesus to your neighbor, and Jesus to your coworker, and Jesus to your friends, and, and I'm praying for that. A few years ago, there was a VR that came out of the life of Jesus, and it was available on all these VR streaming platforms. I don't know how many of you are into virtual reality games and things like that. I would say, I'm looking at you, most of you are into this, so it's, this is totally relevant. But this company was super excited to release this VR of the life of Jesus because people can get closer to the Jesus than they ever have before. And I thought I had my phone on me because I have the article. Basically, this company said, we've created the entire life of Christ in virtual reality. Because to be in the world of Jesus does something powerful for people's souls and spirit. I'm going to lovingly challenge that. And say to you, the world doesn't need to throw on a pair of Oculus goggles and watch the virtual reality world of Jesus. They already have Jesus walking in their midst. It's called you, the church. And perhaps the only Jesus they will see, the only Jesus they will walk with is you going out as little Christ in a world that needs to desperately meet Jesus. This is what I'm praying for you to be the church in the midst of our society. And if you don't think God can use you or he wants to use you, I think we've proven that to be false with today's passage. He's going to equip you and prepare you for the work of ministry. However imperfectly you need to shine the light of Christ to your, your, your world, you need to do it. And watch how God works. Watch how exciting the adventure can be. And I will say, to be continued. Until next time. And all God's people said, let's stand, let's pray. Father, thanks for today. Thank you for the, the notching out of this, this time, which I will call sacred moments. Because what we have sung today, what we have shared today, what we have explored today, is certainly near and dear to your heart. This is not trivial or meaningless stuff. This is important. This is eternal, important truth. And Lord, for some reason, I really sense that we as a people need to continue to hear th this, this, this message. We, we get sidelined. We get distracted. We're humid. Thank you for loving us as we are where we're at. But you're God who's going to move us. You will not leave us inactive. You are not going to bless us as we just embrace status quo. You're going to be a God who comes in and moves us to accomplish things for your great name. But we can only accomplish those things by the power of the Spirit, the guidance of the Spirit. So we want to be a surrendered people. We want to be a submitted people. And we want to be a people who pray your will be done. 
Help us to walk in step with the Spirit. Help us to fine-tune our spiritual hearing so we can understand what's next. Oh, Lord, to be used in your army of men and women to take the great message of, of the gospel to the world, what, a, what an incredible privilege and honor that is. Ignite that fire within us, and may all we do and say be for your glory, O oh Lord. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he continue to lift his face towards you and give you his grace and peace forever and ever. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you soon, all right?